For those of you who haven't been with us, we've been studying the book of Acts, and we've been making our way through it. We took a little bit of a break, but we're back to it. And you may not know, but there are 19 sermons in the book of Acts that are written out. And some of them are addressed to uh, Jewish audiences, and some of them are addressed to Gentile audiences. And today we're going to be looking at one of those. But what I thought I would do instead of just reading the sermon straight straight through is I might go back, kind of do something a little off uh, topic here, go back and, and look at all the underlying passages that this sermon is built on. And then put that in a kind of a framework that I hope will help you to understand the overarching story of the Bible. So uh, those of you who received the communique email this week, uh, we said we're going to try to do the Bible in 30 minutes. And I know I'm already like a minute in, so I better get moving. So would you open up to actually the book of Genesis? We're in Acts, but we're going to start in the book of Genesis. We'll open up to the book of Genesis chapter 1. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and we'll pass one to you. Uh, Don't be shy about that. We'd love, right over here, we'd love for you to be able to follow along and see the various texts. It's going to be on page one. We're going to be starting in that particular Bible that we're handing out. And what we're doing here is we're sort of pulling the camera back, getting a bird's eye view of the entire picture of the Bible. And what happens in the book of Acts in the sermon that Paul preaches is he, he does this so that people might believe. And so I would ask that you carry that with you as we go through this process, that I might believe as we go through this process, and I'll explain more uh, what that looks like as we get into it. The message of the Bible is for you. Hope you'll see that today. Some of you are going to recognize some of this process, this framework, because it's one that comes from our Gospel Academy courses, and so we've been talking about that over the last two weeks. This will be a nice chance for you to see kind of what we do in our Gospel Academy. Uh, But more than that, I hope you're going to see that the message of the Bible is for you. There's going to be six stages here that we're going to walk through, and uh, so we'll just have a little bit of time to glance off of each one and hopefully put some illustration in here to help it come alive. Uh, So here's the first one. So we're we're going to talk about the human condition, three different elements of the human condition. We're going to trace it through multiple stages, uh, it being lost and then recovered, ruined and redeemed would be a way you could talk about it. And the three conditions that we're going to talk about are these, talking about being with God, So we are made as human beings to be with God. That's what the Bible teaches. And we're going to talk about uh, also being together. We're made as human beings to be in community, a fundamental element of what it means to be a person. And we are made as human beings to be in what was originally the garden, a perfect place, a perfect place. So, So God designed us for those three conditions. And that's what we see in the very beginning of the Bible. Let's talk about the first stage, which is obviously the stage of creation, when we were with God together in the garden. And I'm going to try and do this for each one, and then I'll kind of line them up so that you can see how they interrelate. So the deepest longings that we have are fulfilled in the Garden of Eden because God is present in a very intimate way, and Adam and Eve are relating together with great closeness and love, and there's no disharmony between them initially. There's no sin between them. And they're in this beautiful garden. We can only imagine. Think of the most beautiful places you've been in your life. Uh, And it's just, it's all working together. In fact, at the very end of chapter 1 in Genesis, God says, it says this, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And how beautiful that 
at the outset of creation, God intended to do something very good and to share that with us. And those three conditions of being in the presence of God, having relational harmony, and being in a beautiful place. Right? Doesn't that resonate with you? Don't you long for that? Don't you want that? This, yeah. So this past summer, I was blessed. This last summer, I was blessed to be on sabbatical and had an opportunity to go to Barcelona. And love Barcelona. I was there in 1992, and the cathedral, Sagrada Familia uh, by Gaudi, was being built. And when I was there in 92, they just had one facade done. Uh, and I, 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 I remember seeing it. I didn't really think it. I thought, well, that's kind of odd, interesting. Um, and I filed it away. And then, you know, all these years later, last summer, I was back in Barcelona. And they had finished uh, the interior of the cathedral and nearly the exterior almost entirely. And I, I didn't really trace and remember the history or study up on the history. And so we kind of went into the cathedral now almost completely done um, not knowing what to expect. And so I, I didn't actually expect all that much. And if you know anything about this cathedral, it's, it's a modern cathedral that takes all the old sort of elements of the story of God, which a cathedral tells the story of God, right? And puts them into more of a modern form, adding especially elements of the natural world into the building itself. So that, uh, for example, all the stained glass on one side, on the morning side of the cathedral, is blue to kind of reflect the sun, the early part of the morning. And it's all got red and yellow hues on the other side as the sun goes down. And so you've got these elements. And the, and the pillars, as you normally see in a, in a cathedral, they branch off so that they look like these massive trees. And it's, it's taller than almost any cathedral that you, you, you've been inside before. It's just phenomenal. And I was keeping a journal while I was on my sabbatical. And uh, the experience I had in that moment, I, I traced in there. And let me read just a, a few lines of that. As I entered the basilica, my head rotated back so that my eyes could reach out to the impossibly high vault. Involuntarily, the breath went out of my lungs and I felt progressively smaller. Not desperately small, but wonderfully and inspiringly small. Though something inside me kept trying to say it's only a building, something else inside me was being moved to tears. I wanted desperately to hoard the unfolding experience. For no one to look at me or to talk to me. I wanted no interruptions. I wanted to be a pure vessel receiving all in that scarce moment that this place had to give or to take away. I did not know which was supposed to happen and did not care. Freely and immediately, I had submitted myself to this place and was gladly no longer attempting to exercise control. I would be led willingly to whatever outcome I was directed. And then a few paragraphs later, reflecting on the very center of the cathedral where uh, the crucifix comes. It's the, the, the form of Jesus hanging close down from this high vaulted ceiling. At the center of this festival of creation and humanity, descending from the impossibly high vault so that it comes seemingly right within reach, is the central crucifix. A cloth canopy accentuates the descent and signals that the entire story is focused on this central pivot. All the struts of the basilica find their union in the form hanging before you, arms outstretched, structured in sacrifice to make possible what could otherwise never be the continual upholding of all that is. 
At the center of this grand creation rests this form, smaller though grander still than all that surrounds it. You imagine that without this figure, the entire edifice explodes outward in a million unrelated parts. No coherence, no story, no pivot, no hope, no light. Thank God for the figure who hangs in the center of it all. Simple, close, human scale, unelaborated. It goes on describing uh, the moments of experiencing the story of God being told in that incredible environment. And for me, it was one of those moments of uh, close to perfection, right? Where you just, you don't want it to end. You had moments like that? Think about those moments. Those are glimpses for us. And, and I, I believe God, you know, sprinkles those out through our lives in, in just the right amount so that we'll be mindful that, in fact, what he is, has made is very good. It's very good. Adam and Eve were living in that kind of fulfillment day in and day out and all of the beauty that goes with it. It was very good. But then you know the story, what happens next. Stage two is the fall. Chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And then they eat of the forbidden fruit, listening to the serpent's enticements. And verse eight in chapter three. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So, so God was so close to them. But now they're hiding. So we have the fracturing of that being in the presence of God. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree. So now here comes the disharmony horizontally. And I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And so fracturing with the world around them. And of course, the consequences of this are dire. And one of the main consequences is they're going to have to leave this place where they are. And it comes on the heels of the breaking of those three conditions that are woven into the fabric of humanity. Being with God, being together in harmony, and being in the perfect place. And God, it's actually an act of grace that God sends them out of the garden. Because were they to stay, they could eat from the tree of eternal life and it would be an eternal fallenness. So sending them out was an act of grace. But I'm sure for them in that moment, it didn't feel like it. It felt like them being separated from, from the God who had previously walked with them in the garden in the cool of the shade and from one another as they began to turn at each other and from the beautiful place. I remember uh, leaving my childhood home, uh, looking in the rearview mirror as we drove away. You know, it was, it was any, all that I had ever known, and I loved it. Um, had all kinds of friends in the neighborhood. We played together in the streets every day. And they toilet papered the realty sign in front of my house because they didn't want me to go. They wanted to cover it up, right? So nobody would buy the house. But it happened anyway. And I remember vividly pulling away. I was probably in seventh grade. 
And you probably have moments like that too, right? When you're looking in the rearview mirror at something precious that is disappearing for you. And that's the result of the fall. That is what we experienced. They experienced it to the full as they left the Garden of Eden because they'd known such fulfillment. And, and so now they're reduced to scrambling. And, and, and the scrambling increases. The ramifications increase so that, you know, we have the story of Cain and Abel. Um, and, and then we have the story of Noah. And then the story of the Tower of Babel. And, and in each case, in, in Tower of Babel, they're trying to reach God, you know. But then they're doing it self Ishly, and, and they end up getting scattered. And again and again, it's the repetition of them being hidden in some way from God uh, against each other and looking for a place, scrambling on the face of the earth. Now, God could have ended the story there. That could have been the last of it because, see, as we understand from Scripture, God is holy. And so, the turning away from God was completely the responsibility of the human beings. God had no obligation to then come back and try to figure out how to bring restoration. So the Bible could have ended at chapter 11 and it would have been fully just and fair. But God determines to make a plan instead and to come after us. And so we have a kind of a subdivision here. The first part of the Bible is the creation story, creation and fall, and then Genesis 12, all the way through the book of Revelation, is the redemption story. And the redemption story is the story of God pursuing us. And, and let's, let's look how God's pursuit, look at how God's pursuit of us begins. Look in Genesis 17. Genesis 17, starting in verse 1. And what God's going to do to begin to pursue people, to bring them back to himself, is he's going to choose one person. And then he's going to work through that one person to reestablish relationship, to establish community with the, among them, and to put them in a place that will be suitable for them. Genesis 17, 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. See, that's God reestablishing relationship. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. That's people in community. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring. So the relational dynamic will be reestablished in all directions after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And there's one piece missing. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And so there's a promise. It begins with a promise that God's going to restore relationship with him. He's going to restore relationship among the people, and he's going to put them again in a place. And this begins the process of their restoration. And the story goes on. Um, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob, and Joseph, some of these stories, if you're less familiar, you probably heard some of these stories. They all fit into this 
this promise and its unfolding. And Joseph surprisingly ends up in prison in Egypt, but that ends up being the very means by which God saves his people. They grow in the land of Egypt, becoming perhaps a million or more people. Uh, and then the, the, the leadership in Egypt changes and they become enslaved by the Pharaoh of Egypt. And that's where we pick up the story. Now the people of God have been incubating in Egypt and they're enslaved though because they became too powerful. They became threatening. So in the fourth stage, we see a deliverance from the slavery taking place. And we're going to see that in this stage, um, there's going to be an exodus that will deliver them. The word exodus just simply means way out. Exodus means way out. Now file that away because we're going to see a recurrence of this theme of the exodus uh, later on in the New, New Testament. God releases them. You know the story of Moses. God releases them to create a new society in which he will be reigned. They will, they, they're going to go out and worship God. That's the idea. And they're going to be a kingdom of priests. They're not just going to be for themselves. They're going to be for the nations around them. They're going to be for the people around them. And he gives them the law by which they might live and establish order and rebuild that relational harmony that they had lost as they turned against each other. I want you to note something really important, that, that God releases them first before he gives them the law. So he frees them from slavery and then he shows them how to live. Now, a lot of times when we're thinking about religion, we think about religion as I got to do what's right and then I'll have a relationship with God. But Christianity isn't like that. It's, it's about grace. It leads with grace. Let me free you from slavery and then I'll show you how to live and I'll empower you to live. Very important dynamic to remember as you think about your relationship with God. You'll never get, get it by this. You, you, you got to get grace first. And then, and that's the way it is all the way in the Old Testament. Grace, God leads with grace. So he gives them this law, and they're then supposed to live by the law. And then they're going to have harmony with him. Their relationship will be restored. And then they're going to have harmony with each other. And they're stewards of the law. So um, if you go, I think if you go back one slide, um, we have these three different stewards of the law. We have the law, which, is, which shows them how to live. And then the judges are to steward that law. And, and then after the judges fail, and the kings come along, they say, well, we need a king. That's going to help us. Let's, let's get a king. So God relents and gives them a king. And so they have kings. But you know what? Even with the kings enforcing the law, they can't get to the place where they're truly living in harmony and loving God and loving one another in the land that they've been given. And so then God sends the prophets to call them back to the law, to, 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 to help enforce and establish his ways in the midst of the community so that they can restore those relationships. And guess what? They still can't do it with the prophets. And finally, in his frustration, God allows them, even brings the nations around them to overrun them. And they're scattered and dispersed across the land. And that's what that word exile is about. Because at the end of the day, the people haven't been able to live out the law in their own strength, no matter whether they had judges or kings or prophets. They're incapable 
of recreating the conditions of the garden in their own strength. Now, do you think that was a surprise to God? Definitely not. So that's not the end of the story. It does feel like it at times, though. And at the end of the Old Testament, we have this great despair that comes on the people. And I just want to pause and remind those of us who might be in this moment in a similar kind of despair. That we have a God who specializes in moments of despair. And so when all the people of God got to this place and they're scattered now across the nations and they feel like we have just made such a mess of everything, there's no way that we could be restored. It's not out of God's plan and possibility to even in that moment bring healing and redemption. Now, some of you right now might be experiencing your own end of the Old Testament, right? You feel like life is at the place where uh, it's in tatters, uh, it's shredded, the things that you have hoped for and longed for and wished for and wanted to fix, you've been incapable of fixing. In fact, if you're, dare I say it, a, a conscious person and you look back on your life, you will note with increasing clarity that you have done things, that people around you have done things, that have created a mess. You've created a mess. You've been part of creating the mess. And it's really tempting and easy at times to feel like there's no way out. That that what we've created is beyond God's saving. And the beautiful message of the overarching story of the Bible is that we can't actually do anything so bad that it knocks God off his throne that makes it impossible for him to redeem or restore. And the people at their lowest point here, now we turn the page and we get into the New Testament, and we see a beautiful new kind of a deliverance, one that's actually going to be efficacious. It's going to be effective where the old deliverance was incapable because it relied on the internal strength of people. The new one is going to rely on the power of God. And it begins, obviously, with the person of Jesus Christ. God looks down and he says, okay, y'all are having a lot of trouble figuring this thing out. So let me take on flesh and enter in. And that's what the Bible teaches. That's who the Bible teaches is the person of Jesus Christ. It's God taking on flesh to enter in and demonstrate, firstly, what we couldn't do to live in the way that we were designed to live. And that's who Jesus is. And, and, you know, as they say, nobody ever thought of the thing that Jesus should have said, right? I mean, everything he says is perfect because he lives a perfect life. He, He says the perfect things. Jesus Christ is demonstrating what we were intended to be. But it's not only that. It's that he then, after teaching and loving and healing and living with people, and suffering alongside of them, all the things that we suffer as human beings. Then he takes and offers himself, stepping into that whole framework of Old Testament deliverance that was, that was about fulfilling the law. And when you didn't fulfill the law, you made sacrifices to, to redeem it. He steps into that whole Old Testament system which has been formed, but could never actually bring restoration. And he offers himself What does he call himself? The lamb, right? He offers himself the perfect sacrifice, the sacrificial lamb. So as he's there on the cross, he is the the great lamb 
atoning for sin once and for all so that the thing that separates us from God ever since the Garden of Eden, which is sin, could be addressed finally and fully. That's who Jesus Christ is. That's what he does on the cross. And so the resurrection is sort of like an exclamation point that he's been effective in overcoming sin. Why? Because at the very beginning, with the entrance of sin comes the entrance of death. So if over here, Jesus has overcome sin, then he must have reversed the effects of it, which is death. That's why the resurrection. It all fits together. It all fits together in this amazing, I mean, you can't make this up. I mean, people all through, all over the course of the Bible were writing this down, not knowing how all the pieces were going to fit together. Only God could do that. This is why the resurrection, it's not just some random thing that Jesus rises from the dead. It's a statement that he's overcome the initial problem that we saw in the Garden of Eden, which is sin. And this is our exodus. Luke 9, 28 through 30. Now about eight days after these Sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. It's like a foretaste of what the heavenly life is going to be like. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. Now, the Greek word under that is exodos. Does that sound familiar to you? Exodus. So if I were ever translating the Bible, I'm going to change that to say Exodus because the link to what happens in the past has to be maintained, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So just as Moses led the people of God out of that slavery, Jesus leads the people of God out of slavery to sin, the great slavery that has us all captured. And just so you understand what's happening here he's dealing with the sin problem we couldn't make ourselves righteous by trying really hard so God comes and he does it for us Romans 3 21 through 26 but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law right you couldn't do it by the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Belief is a key element. Remember when I talked about the Apostle Paul's sermon, he was, it was so that people would believe. And today is so that you might believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in this case, it's re referring to Jews and Gentiles, but it can refer to all races, uh, all conditions of humanity, we are all in this, we're all the same. We're all made in the image, but we're all tinged with sin. And we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That's a satisfaction by his blood to be received by faith. There it is. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, do you want a universe where there's no justice? 
No, you want justice, right? You want God to be just. But that means that if you've ever committed injustice, you're going to be caught up in his making things just, right? So, so that was the problem. So God solves it by stepping into the world in the flesh, going to the cross, being raised to the dead, so he can justify us. So he's just. We have a universe that maintains justice, and he's a justifier. Thankfully, we don't have to be swept up when justice comes. We don't have to be swept on it, up and destroyed in it because Jesus has taken into himself the consequences of our sin. Just and justifier. That's what God has done. That's God's great plan of redemption. And this grace, as we call this, see, this is something you don't earn. It's what you receive. Religion is what you do. Christianity, following Jesus about what's been done for you, okay? So uh, what happens is then this grace, this message of grace, the good news of grace is stewarded first by Jesus and then by the disciples. They're sent out to proclaim it. And then by the church, that's us. So today, this is where we fit in, grace and the church. We exist to share the message of the grace of God with each other and with the people we encounter. And when this message goes forth, people can receive it and discover the goodness of God's redemption in their lives. And the, it's like the door is being held open right now so that more people can receive that grace and can be called into relationship with God on those, those three conditions, relationship with God, healing with one another, and ultimately a place with God. We experience that place now by the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, but one day, and we'll get to that, we'll experience it in all of its fullness. The door is being held open, and that door, though, will close, and there'll be no more opportunity to respond in faith to God. There'll be no more opportunity to respond in faith to God when Jesus returns again. That's when that door closes, in the return of Christ, the second coming. And that's when he's going to gather together. So, so uh, no, just stay on the one if you could. I know it's a lot to follow, so you're doing a great job. Thank you. Um, so, like, the exile was the dispersing of the people of God after the law failed, right? And the, and, and, and the second coming of Jesus is the ingathering, the calling together again of the people of God so that we can be close to God, so that we can be close to one another, and so that we can be in the place that God always intended for us. And that leads us to the last one, which is the fulfillment. And I think I'm going to maybe make it. Fulfillment with God together. Remember, we started in a garden. Now we're in a city. Why are we in a city? Because God's amazing, and he allows us to contribute to the very nature of heaven itself. That's, that's what a city is, right? Like, it's a garden that people have messed with and done their thing. And God's like, cool. Yeah, bring in your creativity to what we're making here. And some of you, when you think about heaven, you think about sitting on a cloud and playing a harp. I don't know where that comes from. That's not biblical. 
the new heaven, new earth is just like this world, only more substantial. And there's no sin or causes of sin or effects of sin in it. There's no decay. There's no brokenness, all that stuff. But you do, you live, you breathe, you make things, you know people, right? You know God. That's the best thing. The very best thing about heaven is that we're in the presence of God. And by the way, that's what hell is not. Hell is the worst thing about hell is the lack of the presence of God. And, and what God does, he says, look, I get you, you got 80 years or whatever it is, the door's open for you to decide, do you want to be with me for all eternity or not? If you decide not, he grants your wish. That's what hell is. It's being away from the presence of God. And heaven, the best thing about it is being in the presence of God. But we also get to be together. There's no fighting, selfishness, goodbyes, falseness, rushing, all that. We have to be in a city which isn't boring. We're going to go on making things and inventing and doing and endlessly fruitful and learning and contributing all along. Again, finished with this, my journal uh, on the sabbatical last summer. At the end of my sabbatical, I ended up on the Klamath River, which is where I received my call to ministry many, many years ago. And... uh, Previous to that, we'd been in Spain, and one of my favorite things when I lived in Spain as younger in college was flamenco music. I was a guitarist and uh, loved flamenco music, and so we went and saw lots of flamenco music in, the, um, in, in Madrid. And of course, my wife goes up after one of the performances and finds the, instruct, the, the performer and says, hey, my husband loves flamenco. Would you give him a dance lesson? And... Um, and he says, yeah, sure, meet me here at this place. And so I go the next day, 10 a.m., and I get this amazing dance lesson. And I'm not going to dance for you. So just put that to rest right now. But I'm going to read you something about dancing. Um, and, and, and I had this great lesson. And so I learned it all, and I read everything down. And then I go away, come back, and I'm the last week. And I'm on the Klamath River in Northern California in the middle of nowhere, like literally 15 miles from the ocean with nothing in between, and 21 miles from the nearest town. I'm in a cabin by myself for a week. I'm reading the Bible. I'm having like Paul third heaven moments over and over again. I'm weeping, and then on breaks, I'm practicing my flamenco dancing. I mean, it was, it was amazing. And the, the theme of my, my sabbatical is Stones of Remembrance, and the Klamath River water is down, and so there's just stones, white stones everywhere, you, as far as you can see. And it dawns on me one day, oh, yeah, stones of remembrance. And here are thousands upon thousands of stones testifying to the faithfulness of God. And so in the last evening, I go out to the shore as the sun is going down, and I've got my headphones on, and nobody's around for miles and miles and miles. In the evening, as my journal, I was drawn down to the riverbank. The wind had died The sun radiated its final warmth and color from the west, causing the downstream V of the joining mountains to glow pink and red and yellow in layers. Silhouetted in the fading light, I danced upon the white rocks, stones and stones of endless shapes and sizes, harbingers of memories yet to be made. The heavy river saturated by by darkening towards blackness. An otter, barely visible, swam upstream, its body immersed in thick shadow, its head awake to the airy realm. I closed my eyes and danced. The music of Vicente Amigo, Requiem, flowing in and over and around me. 
For a moment, I lost track of my domain. I was present on that riverbank more than I'd ever been, and yet I had moved on through it. There I was, being in that most desirable spot at that perfect time of the day. And yet this glorious place, almost imperceptibly, had become a portal to a more airy realm that I was somehow briefly moving into. Gate of heaven. I danced, expressing all the joy and all the pain of a lifetime lived to this point. With each movement, the joys and the pains were given form, and we made peace over and over until as much as could be said between us was said. At last, there was no loneliness in this place. The rocks had been enlisted to cry out, the trees to clap their hands, and the mountains and hills to break into song. I was privileged to be their dancer. Our little troop, just six or seven mountains, a few hundred thousand trees, and countless stones, all breathing harmoniously in praise to the one who made us. The great knower, you who we all sensed bending towards us in that moment, making your gracious face to shine upon us, whispering in a voice like the sound of cascading waters, finally. So God, as we ponder the goodness of what you have done, the goodness of what you are doing, the thought of one day hearing your voice like cascading waters as it speaks of in Revelation, speaking over us and our people and our place. It is very, very good. Would you lodge in our hearts and our minds such a deep, abiding yearning for you and for that place and for your people? That we might be carried through the challenges and the pains and the sufferings that this life brings. And that not only would we be survivors, but we would be joyful singers and dancers to your glory. That the message of the light of salvation would emanate from us to us and to the world around us. And that we would be enlisting more dancers and more singers to your glory. Some of us have broken bodies, and, and we look forward to a day when all of that brokenness will be redeemed. We will be whole again and strong, and we thank you. Some of us are absent hope, and so today, by your Spirit, would you fill us with a supernatural hopefulness that leans into a perfect future and empowers us for an imperfect present. Some of us have been meandering, trying to discern what is the purpose of life and why do we exist, what are we here for, and suddenly the story of you, the story of, our, of God, begins to make sense this morning. 
And we have an opportunity in this moment to respond in faith. Faith in the one who makes it all possible. His name is Jesus Christ. Faith is so easy. It's just a, it's a yes. I see you, God. I see what you're doing, and I want it to be about me. I want to be part of your story. I want to be part of your team. I want to be enlisted in all that you are. I want to make you the center of my life. I want to work towards and live towards you being enough for me, you being everything for me. These are our longings and so many others that I can't name because they're too deep and profound and wonderful. But they all find their resolution in this story. So with that, we praise you this morning. In the matchless name of Jesus, we offer up this prayer. Amen.